Chapter 15 of The Rough Road by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 15 In the village of Frelu, life went on as before. The same men, though a different regiment, filled its streets and its houses. For by what signs could the inhabitants distinguish one horde of English infantrymen from another? Once a Highland battalion had been billeted on them, and for the first day or so they derived some excitement from the novelty of the costume. The historic Franco-Scottish tradition still lingered, and they welcomed the old allies of France with a special kindliness. But they found that the habits and customs of the men in kilts were identical, in their French eyes, with those of the men in trousers. It is true the Scotch had bagpipes. The village turned out to listen to them in whole-eyed and whole-eared wonder and the memory of the skirling music remained indelible. Otherwise there was little difference. And when a Midland regiment succeeded a South Coast regiment, where was the difference at all? They might be the same men. Jean, standing by the kitchen door, watching the familiar scene in the courtyard, could scarcely believe there had been a change. Now and again she caught herself wondering why she could not pick out any one of her three musketeers. There were two or three soldiers, as usual, helping Toinette with her crocks at the well. There she was herself, moving among them, as courteously treated as though she were a princess. Perhaps these men, whom she heard had come from manufacturing centres, were a trifle rougher in their manners than her late guests, but the intention of civility and rude chivalry was no less sincere. They came and asked for odds and ends, very politely. To all intents and purposes they were the same set of men— why was not Doggy among them? It seemed very strange. After a while she made some sort of an acquaintance with the sergeant, who had a few words of French, and appeared anxious to improve his knowledge of the language. He explained that he had been a teacher in what corresponded to the French École Normale. He came from Birmingham, which he gave her to understand was a glorified Lille. She found him very earnest, very self-centred in his worship of efficiency. As he had striven for his class of boys, so now was he striving for his platoon of men. In a dogmatic way he expanded to her ideals severely practical. In their few casual conversations he interested her. The English, from the first terrible day of their association with her, had commanded her deep admiration. But until lately, in the most recent past, her sex, her national aloofness, and her ignorance of English had restrained her from familiar talk with the British army. But now she keenly desired to understand this strange, imperturbable, kindly race. She put many questions to the sergeant, always at the kitchen door, in full view of the courtyard, for she never thought of admitting him into the house, and his answers, even when he managed to make himself intelligible, puzzled her exceedingly. One of his remarks led her to ask for what he was fighting, beyond his apparently fixed idea of the efficiency of the men under his control. What was the spiritual idea at the back of him? The democratization of the world, and the universal brotherhood of mankind. When the British lion shall lie down with the German lamb? He flashed a suspicious glance. Strenuous schoolmasters in primary schools have little time for the cultivation of a sense of humour. Something of the sort must be the ultimate result of the war. "'But in the meantime you have got to change the German wolf into the petit mouton. "'How are you going to do it?' "'By British efficiency, 
by proving to him that we are superior to him in every way. We'll teach him that it doesn't pay to be a wolf. And do you think he will like being transformed into a lamb, while you remain a lion? I don't suppose so, but we'll give him his chance to try to become a lion, too. Jean shook her head. No, monsieur, wolf he is, and wolf he will remain. A wolf with venomous teeth. The civilised world must see that the teeth are always drawn. I'm speaking of fifty years hence, said the sergeant. And I of three hundred years hence. Ah, uh, you're mistaken, mademoiselle. Jean shook her head. No, I'm not mistaken. Tell me, why do you want to become brother to the Bosch? I'm not going to be his brother till the war's over, said the sergeant stolidly. At present I'm devoting all my faculties to killing as many of him as I can. She smiled. Sufficient for the day is the good thereof. Go on killing them, monsieur. The more you kill, the fewer there will be for your children and your grandchildren to lie down with. She left him, and tried to puzzle out his philosophy. For the ordinary French philosophy of the war is very simple. They have no highfalutin altruistic ideas of improving the Bosch. They don't care a tinker's curse what happens to the unholy brood beyond the Rhine, so long as they are beaten, humiliated, subjected, so long as there is no chance of their ever deflowering again with their brutality the sacred soil of France. The French mind cannot conceive the idea of this beautiful brotherhood, but on the contrary rejects it as something loathsome, something bordering on spiritual defilement. No, Jean could not accept the theory that we were waging war for the ultimate chastening and beatification of Germany. She preferred Doggy's reason for fighting, for his soul. There was something which she could grip. And having gripped it, it was something around which her imagination could weave a web of noble fancy. After all, when she came to think of it, every one of the Allies must be fighting for his soul. For his soul's sake had not her father died. Although she knew no word of German, it was obvious that the Ulan officer had murdered him because he had refused to betray his country and her uncle, to fight for his soul had he not gone out with his heroic but futile sporting gun? And this pragmatical sergeant, what else had led him from his schoolroom to the battlefield? Why couldn't he be honest about it, like Doggy? She missed Doggy. He ought to be there, as she had often seen him unobserved, talking with his friends, or going about his military duties, or playing the lay with the magical touch of the musician. She knew far more of Doggy than he was aware of. And at night she prayed for the little English soldier who was facing death. She had much time to think of him during the hours when she sat by the bedside of Aunt Marin, who talked incessantly of François-Marie, who was killed on the Argonne, and Gaspard, who as a territorial was no doubt defending Madagascar from invasion. And it was pleasant to think of him, because he was a new distraction from tragical memories, he seemed to lay the ghosts. He was different from all the Englishmen she had met. The young officers who had helped her in her flight had very much the same charm of breeding, very much the same intonation of voice. Instinctively she knew him to be of the same social caste, but they, and the officers whom she saw about the street and in the courtyard, when duty called them there, had the military air of command. And this her little English soldier had not. Of course, he was only a private, and privates are trained to obedience. She knew that perfectly well. 
But why was he not commanding instead of obeying? There was a reason for it. She had seen it in his eyes. She wished she had made him talk more about himself. Perhaps she had been unsympathetic and selfish. He assumed, she reflected, a certain crânerie with his fellows, and crânerie is swagger bereft of vulgarity. We have no word to connote his conception in a French mind. And she admired it, but her swift intuition pierced the assumption. She divined a world of hesitancies behind the musketeer swing of the shoulders. He was so gentle, so sensitive, so quick to understand, and yet so proud, and yet again so unconfessedly dependent. Her woman's protective instinct responded to a mute appeal. "'But, Mademoiselle Jean, you are wet through, you are perished with cold. What folly have you been committing?' Toinette scolded when she returned after wishing Doggy the last bon chance. "'The folly of putting my Frenchwoman's heart,' mon coeur de Francaise, into the hands of a brave little soldier to fight with him in the trenches. Mon Dieu, mademoiselle, you better go straight to bed, and I will bring you a bon tilule, which will calm your nerves and produce a good perspiration. So Toinette put Jean to bed, and administered the infallible infusion of lime leaves, and Jean was never the worse for her adventure. But the next day she wondered a little why she had undertaken it. She had a vague idea that it paid a little debt of sympathy. An evening or two afterwards, Jean was sewing in the kitchen, when Toinette, sitting in the armchair by the extinct fire, fished out of her pocket the little olive-wood box with the pandies and forget-me-nots on the lid, and took a long pinch of snuff. She did it with somewhat of an air, which caused Jean to smile. "'Dis donc, poor Toinette, you are insupportable with your snuff-box. One would say a marquise of the old school.' "'Ah, Mademoiselle Jean,' said the old woman, "'you must not laugh at me.' I was just thinking that if anything happened to the petty monsieur, I couldn't have the heart to go on putting his snuff up my old nose. Nothing will happen to him, said Jean. The old woman sighed and re-engulfed the snuff-box. Who knows? From one minute to another, who knows whether the little ones who are dear to us are alive or dead? And this petty monsieur is dear to you, Toinette? Jean asked in her even voice, without looking up from her sewing. "'Since he resembles my petiot.' "'He will come back,' said Jean. "'I hope so,' said the old woman mournfully. In spite of manifold duties, Jean found the days curiously long. She slept badly. The tramp of the sentry below her window over the archway brought her no sense of comfort, as it had done for months before the coming of Doggy. All the less did it produce the queer little thrill of happiness which was hers when— Looking down through the shutter slats, she had identified in the darkness, on a change of guard, the little English soldier to whom she had spoken so intimately. And when he had challenged the rounds, she had recognised his voice. If she had obeyed an imbecile and an unmaidenly impulse, she would have drawn open the shutter and revealed herself. But apart from maidenly shrinkings, familiarity with war had made her realise the sacred duties of a sentry, and she had remained in discreet seclusion awake until his spell was over. But now the rhythmical beat of the heavy boots kept her from sleeping, and would have irritated her nerves intolerably, had not her sound common sense told her that the stout fellow who wore them was protecting her from the Hun, together with a million or so of his fellow-countrymen. She found herself counting the days to Doggy's return. 
"'At last it is to-morrow,' she said to Toinette. "'What is to-morrow?' asked the old woman. "'The return of our regiment,' replied Jean. "'That is good. We have a regiment now,' said Toinette, ironically. The Midland Company marched away, as so many had marched away before. But Jean did not go to the little embankment at the turn of the road to wish any one good luck. She stood at the house door, as she had always done, to watch them pass in the darkness. For there is always something in the sight of men going into battle which gives you a lump in the throat. For Jean it had almost grown into a religious practice. The sergeant had told her that the newcomers would arrive at dawn. She slept a little, awoke with a start as day began to break dressed swiftly, and went downstairs to wait. And then her ear caught the rumble and the tramp of the approaching battalion. Presently transport rolled by, and squads of men, haggard in the grey light, bending double under their packs, staggered along to their billets. And then came a rusty crew, among whom she recognised Macphail's tall, gaunt figure. She stood by the gateway, bareheaded in her black dress and blue apron, defying the sharp morning air, and watched them pass through. She saw Mo Shendish, his eyes on the heels of the man in front. She recognised nearly all. But the man she looked for was not there. He could not have passed without her seeing him, but as soon as the gateway was clear, she ran into the courtyard and fled across it to cut off the men. There was no doggy. Blank disappointment was succeeded by sudden terror. Phineas saw her coming. He stumbled up to her, dropped his pack at her feet, and spread out both his hands. She lost sight of the horde of weary clay-covered men around her. She cried, "'Where is he?' "'I don't know. He is dead.' "'No one knows.' "'But you must know, you,' cried Jean, with a new fear in her eyes which Phineas could not bear to meet. "'You promised to bring him back.' "'It was not my fault,' said Phineas. "'He was out last night—no, the night before. This is morning.' "'Repairing Bardoir. I was not with him.' "'Mais, mon Dieu, why not?' "'Because the duties of soldiers are arranged for them by their officers, mademoiselle.' Oh, "'It is true. Pardon, but continue.' "'A party went out to repair war. It was quite dark. Suddenly a German rifle-shot gave the alarm. The enemy threw up star-shells, and the front trenches on each side opened fire. The wiring party, of course, lay flat on the ground. One of them was wounded.' When it was all over, didn't last long. Our men got back, bringing the wounded man. "'He is severely wounded. Speak!' cried Jean. "'Ah, oh, the wounded man was not Doggy. Doggy went out with the party, but he did not come back. That's why I said no one knows where he is.' She stiffened. "'He is lying out there. He is dead.' Shendish and I and Corporal Wilson over there, he was with the party, got permission to go out and search.' We searched all round where the repair had been going on, but we couldn't find him. Merci. I ought not to have reproached you, she said steadily. C'est un grand malheur. You are right. Life for me is no longer of much value. She looked at him in her penetrating way. I believe you, she said. For the moment, au revoir, you must be worn out with your fatigue. She left him and walked through the straggling men who made respectful way for her. All knew of her friendship with Doggy Trevor, and all realised the nature of this interview. They liked Doggy because he was good-natured and plucky and never complained, 
and would play the whistle on march as long as breath enough remained in his body. As his uncle, the dean, had said, Breed told. In a curious, half-grudging way they recognised the fact. They laughed at his singular inefficiency in the multitudinous arts of the handyman, proficiency in which is expected from the modern private, but they knew that he would go on till he dropped. And knowing that, they saved him from many a reprimand which his absurd efforts in the arts aforesaid would have brought upon him. And now that Doggy was gone, they deplored his loss. But so many had gone, so many had been deplored. Human nature is only capable of a certain amount of deploring while retaining its sanity. The men let the pale French girl, who was Doggy Trevor's friend, pass by in respectful silence. And that, for them, was their final tribute to Doggy Trevor. Jean passed into the kitchen. Toinette drew a sharp breath at the sight of her face. Quoi? Il n'est pas là? No, said Jean. He is wounded. It was impossible to explain to Toinette. Badly? They don't know. Oh, la, la, sighed Toinette. That always happens. That is what I told you. We have no time to think of such things, said Jean. The regimental cooks came up for the hot water, and soon the hungry, weary, nerve-wracked men were served with their morning meal. And Jean stood in the courtyard in front of the kitchen door, and helped with the filling of the tea-kettles, as though no little English soldier called Doggy had ever existed in the regiment. The first pale shaft of sunlight fell upon the kitchen side of the courtyard, and in it Jean stood illuminated. It touched the shades of gold in her dark brown hair, and lit up her pale face and great unsmiling eyes. But her lips smiled valiantly. "'What you think, Mac?' said Moshendish, squatting on the flagstones. "'Do you think she was really sweet on him?' "'Man,' replied Phineas, similarly engaged, "'all I know is that she has added him to her collection of ghosts.' It's not an overbroad company for a lassie to live with. And then, soon afterwards, the trench-broken men stumbled into the barn to sleep, and all was quiet again, and Jean went about her daily tasks with the familiar hand of death once more closing icily around her heart. End of chapter 15